like you to open up your Bible to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to follow along as I read the, the text. It's verses 57 through 62. But I also want you to keep your Bible open throughout today's message because I do plan to go back and reread the text and expound on it in smaller segments. Now, for your information, another account of today's text is also found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and I incorporated both accounts into today's message. But let me read Luke's account. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Now, before I do this, I want to say this, and I may say it a few more times. This is not a parable. This is an account of what actually happened. Okay? It's important we get this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this is a a tough word. So we ask for your insight, your wisdom, Holy Spirit. May you be our teacher and our guide. And may I truly be hidden behind, behind the cross of Christ, that only Jesus is seen and heard. May we hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Saib al-Hussein met Jesus through a reoccurring dream of his. Now that's not too uncommon if you don't know these days in the Muslim world. In his reoccurring dream, Saib was repeatedly told by Jesus that he loved him, that he died on the cross for him, and they needed to turn to him for salvation through repentance, for he was his only hope of heaven. Saib's reoccurring dream haunted him for weeks until one night he relented and he turned to Jesus Christ for salvation by repenting of his sins. For the first time in Saib's life, he felt peace. But now what? Coincidentally, and I put that in parentheses, the very next morning, Saib met a man in the local marketplace named Hassan who, like him, had also turned to Christ for salvation through a reoccurring dream of his. Hassam had been a rug maker, and he was from a a long line of of rug makers. In fact, Hassan's family, they were widely known for these elegant rugs that they made. Hassan was the heir apparent of their family's business. However, after turning to Christ, Hassan's family quickly ostracized him, which included his termination from his family's rug-making business. As a result, Hassan quickly discovered the great cost that comes while serving Jesus Christ in a very Muslim culture. Nonetheless, Hassan soon discovered that he wasn't alone. 
because he providently met a, a group of Christ followers that were like him were former Muslims. In fact, many of his new found friends had also met Jesus Christ through a reoccurring dream of theirs. After meeting Hassan, Saib was invited by him to meet his group and study the Bible in this very secret place that they said they were going to guard with their lives. Saib accepted Hassan's offer. But what would he tell his family? What would he tell his family when, when they asked him why he wasn't going to the mosque with them to pray? And what would happen with his job? For like Hassan had been, Saib was also employed by his family-run business. Saib began meeting regularly with his new Christian friends. They comforted Saib, and then they exhorted him to, to tell his family about his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. You've you got to tell them. They said he, he needed to live his faith as openly as he possibly could. As difficult as it was, Saib followed through on their counsel through the Holy Spirit's enabling. Unfortunately, through his courageous act, Saib lost his job, he lost his apartment, and his family even threatened to do bodily harm if he didn't recant his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. However, Saib did not recant. Instead, he began looking for ways that he might serve the Lord. Saib's service included smuggling Bibles into a neighboring Muslim country that strictly forbid Bibles altogether. On his third trip smuggling Bibles to that neighboring Muslim country, Saib was captured, he was tortured, and then he was killed as a result. Saib had become the sixth member from Hassan's band of of former Muslims turned Christians that had been killed that year for their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saib was greatly missed by his Christian friends. But another from their group soon picked up Saib's baton by agreeing to help smuggle Bibles to that same neighboring Muslim country. And when he dies for his service, another shall take his place. Now that story was actually fictitious. But it did come from events that I have read about recently. And it is very true that many Muslims throughout the Muslim world are coming to faith in Jesus Christ by these reoccurring dreams. We're hearing stories about this regularly. You see, following Christ always includes some kind of a cost. That cost may include something as minor as as stinging words from your friends and your family members. It may also include a more costly result, such as the loss of a job. A loss of promotion, beatings, and yes, even death itself. If no cost is incurred while following Jesus Christ, one has to investigate if they're truly in the faith or not. For Jesus said this in Matthew, the 10th chapter, verse 38. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oftentimes the cross is a cross of suffering and persecution. In today's text, three would-be followers of Jesus made this eye-opening discovery, and it's our theme. Following Jesus must take precedence over everything and everyone. I I want you to hear that, because I think we need to hear this. 
Now listen, following Jesus must take precedence over everything and everyone. At the conclusion of today's message, I'm going to ask you what following Jesus looks like to you. And does following Jesus take precedence over everything and everyone? So I want you to be ready for those two probing questions. Give them some thought even now. Let's begin by taking an in-depth look at the first of three would-be followers of Jesus. I ask you to keep your, your Bible open. I'm going to read verses 57 and 58 of Luke chapter 9 once again. So you follow along in your Bible. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now before we take a look at would-be follower number one, it might be helpful if I first gave you a little background. Like I said earlier, this is not a parable. This is an account of what happened. Now today's text follows Jesus' transfiguration. Now you might remember, Peter, James, and John were the only three disciples to witness Jesus' transfiguration with their own eyes. They, They did so up on top of that mountain. After Jesus was transfigured before them, Moses and Elijah appeared, and and you remember, they they talked with Jesus. The three disciples present, they were awestruck. And Peter sought the Lord's permission. "May, May I build some huts, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah? You see, he wanted to camp out on the mountain. I can't blame him for that. But that didn't happen. They had to come down. After Jesus and his three disciples came down the mountain, you remember they encountered a father with a a boy possessed by a demon. Now Jesus' remaining nine disciples, the ones who, who weren't on the mountain, the nine down below, they had tried to deliver the boy, but they were unsuccessful. Jesus then delivered the boy from his demonic possession. Next, Jesus' disciples started arguing amongst themselves, if you can imagine this, who was the greatest? To which Jesus then taught them about servanthood. Finally, Jesus was unwelcomed by a Samaritan village. And you might remember this amazingly, James and, and John, they became known as the sons of thunder. They asked Jesus, Jesus, can we call fire down from heaven to destroy that Samaritan village? Of course, Jesus said no, and he he rebuked his disciples for that. Now, it was then that this story unfolded here. As Jesus, his disciples, and others were walking along, this man boldly said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what do we know about would-be follower number one? Well, first we know this. We know would-be follower number one was a scribe. He was a scribe. By the way, another, way, another name for a scribe is a teacher of the law. 
scribes or teachers of the law were Jewish scholars that both interpreted the law and, and then what they did is they lived strictly under the law. You might say scribes were very legalistic in their approach. Well, for sure, Jesus didn't have too many scribes following him. In fact, I think most scribes were sworn enemies of Jesus. But for whatever reason, wouldn't be follower number one was a scribe. But perhaps you're saying to yourself, Pastor, wait a minute here, wait a minute. How do we know this would-be follower number one was a scribe? I don't read that in my Bible. Well, you're right, it's not found in today's text. Instead, we discover that tidbit from Matthew's account of the same event. Remember I said that Matthew had, a, had a, an account as well. Now, that's why I think it's beneficial to read the other gospel accounts of the same event. Now, interestingly, Matthew tells us that there were only two would-be followers. And then Luke tells us that there actually were three. What else do we know about would-be follower number one? First, we said he was a scribe. Well, we know this. Would-be follower number one was a, a volunteer. A volunteer. You see, he approached Jesus, and then what he did is he volunteered his service. Rather than Jesus seeking his service, he volunteered. Now, essentially, everyone who serves in a church and isn't paid for their service is what we call a volunteer. I'm the only paid staff, so all of you that, that help out, you're, you're all volunteers. You're all volunteers. Now, you serve as a volunteer because God has done so much for you, plus you get great joy from your service, and then you know that when you serve others, you can help meet needs that they might have. That's why we serve. Now, most pastors, and there's several retired ones here, welcome more volunteers. We, we, we want as many volunteers as we can possibly have because the more volunteers you have, the lighter everyone's load is, and let's be honest, including my load. That, that, that's the truth of the matter, and it impacts all of us. And yet, and yet, Jesus doesn't necessarily welcome this anonymous volunteer. But we're going to get to that later in this point, so... Hold your horses, as the old saying goes. We'll get to it. Thus far, we said, would-be follower number one was a scribe, and he was a volunteer. Well, what else do we know about this man? We also know that would-be follower number one was enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. Remember, he said, I will follow you wherever you go. In other words, unlike the two would-be followers after him, would-be follower number one agreed to follow Jesus unconditionally. Or we might phrase it like this. He didn't have any strings attached. I'll follow you wherever you go. I say to you, enthusiasm is a good thing. But enthusiasm can easily be lost when things get tough. Perhaps that's why so many pastors these days are leaving the ministry for secular work. So as good as enthusiasm is, one's calling to serve Christ, I say to you, it has to go a lot deeper than just that. If it doesn't, setbacks, troubles, trials, and, and heartaches may cause a follower of Christ to, to throw in the towel and just give up. Other than being a scribe, a volunteer, 
and enthusiastic. It's equally true. Would-be follower number one was emphatic. If you want to know how to spell that, look at the board. Emphatic. Now, this is very similar to our previous description of him, but I think it goes a little further. Let me explain. You see, would-be follower number one, he had no stipulation as to where Jesus was going. He said, I don't care where you're going. I'm going to follow you anywhere. Now, on the surface, that sounds like the kind of volunteer I'd want. I want one who says, Pastor, I don't care what you give me to do. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. I would say, Amen. Bring them on. Bring them on. But rather than harnessing his enthusiastic and emphatic desire to follow Jesus anywhere, Jesus seemed to snuff his excitement instead. As a result, we would be right in finally saying this about would-be follower number one. Would-be follower number one was cautioned by Jesus. He was cautioned. Jesus did so by reminding him and us that following him wouldn't be easy. For you see, he, he traveled without any place that he could truly call his own. A contemporary slant on Jesus's might be like this. If you want to follow me, then you've got to live like a nomad. But I wonder, if we live like a nomad, what would we do with most of our things? And if you're anything like me, we've got a household of things, don't we? It's something to think about. Some believe this man was cautioned by Jesus because he was volunteering uh, to follow him for all the wrong reasons. Thus, perhaps would-be follower number one saw Jesus perform many miracles. He, he saw that and he said, well, I want a part of that. So I'm going to follow you because of that. Or maybe... Maybe it was Jesus' teaching that drew him in. Remember, we already said would-be follower number one was a scribe. So you've got to believe Jesus' ability to teach with authority had to have made some kind of an impact on this man. But whatever his reason was, as a follower of Jesus's would-be follower number one had, a, had this front row seat then that everything Jesus was going to say and everything Jesus would do. Nonetheless, through his caution, Jesus reminded would-be follower number one and us that ministry is no picnic, that it's no picnic. At the very least, Jesus wanted would-be follower number one to understand that ministry always has its fair share of valleys. Now, speaking from experience, as deep and scary as those valleys often are, and I've been in some deep and scary ones over the years, they're worth it. But let me tell you this. You've got to count them because they're real. They're real. So one needs to be more than just enthusiastic when following Jesus. There needs to be some deep roots and a healthy understanding of what discipleship, you see, truly entails. So I ask you, are your roots deep? Are they deep? And you have a healthy understanding of what true discipleship entails. I say that because enthusiasm has a, a way of waning, especially when ministry gets tough. 
And speaking from experience, once again, I'll say it, sometimes ministry can be tough. It can be tough. So let's move on to the second of Jesus' three would-be followers. And we read about him in verses 59 through 60. Luke chapter 9. You follow along. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So what do we know about would-be follower number two? Remember, this is a true story. This isn't a parable. First, we know this. Unlike would-be follower number one who volunteered his service, would-be follower number two was called by Jesus. He was called. I say to you, what an honor that was. Specifically, Jesus said to him, you follow me. Follow me. But rather than responding with enthusiasm and and following Jesus, would-be follower number two instead responded with a condition. So would-be follower number two was not only called by Jesus, but he also was conditional in his response. Conditional. Specifically, he asked Jesus if he could delay his call to follow him until after he buried his father. I'll follow you, but first... Let me go back and bury my father. Now on the surface, it appears would-be follower number two wanted to honor his father by burying him, right? That's what it seems like. But there's a little more here than meets the eye. Apparently his father wasn't yet dead. I'll just say he was near death. I say that because if his father was already dead, then what in the world was he doing palling around with Jesus? Why wasn't he tending to his father's funeral proceedings? But he wasn't doing that. Thus, I think we can safely surmise that his dad wasn't yet dead, just near death. It's also highly possible his would-be inheritance was the real reason for his desire to tend to his father's burial. See, he had an ulterior motive. I'm going to get my cut first. That's a possibility. Now, I suspect it's also true tending to his father's burial would have prevented a scandal for every good and loving son tends to his father's burial. Would be follower number two, then he seems to be caught, we use this phrase, between a rock and a hard place. Therefore, a second way we might describe would be follower number two is this. He was divided. Divided. He wanted to follow Jesus, you see. But he also wanted to honor his dad. I want to follow Jesus. He called me. He said, follow me, but I want to honor my dad. But let's be honest here. Sometimes when we choose to honor one or both of our parents, we fail to honor God with that same choice. That's especially true if they're not believers. You need to hear that. Interestingly, as good and noble as his condition seemed, would-be, number, would-be follower number two was corrected by Jesus. Now, we expect that Jesus would have commended him. That's not what happened. He corrected this man. In fact, on the surface, Jesus' correction seems rather cold and harsh. So what gives? 
Folks, we're, we're talking about Jesus. This is Jesus responding to this man. So we have to try to make sense of this. Let me explain. Jesus is reminding would-be follower number two and us how important, hear this now, how important the call of proclaiming the kingdom of God and following him is. Jesus is saying that calling must take precedence over everything and everyone, including tending to family responsibilities. That reminds me of of another instance when Jesus made a similar point. In Luke, the 14th chapter, verses 26 and 27, here's what Jesus said. Now listen to these words. These are our Lord. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Those are the words of Jesus. One commentator said this about those words of Jesus's. He said, we should love Christ so much that our love for family would look like hatred in comparison. I want you to think about that. Do you love Christ so much that your love for family seems like hatred in comparison? Before we move on, let me share a similar experience I had when I was, when my love for God was tested to see if my Love for him was greater than my love for family. Some of you have heard this story previously, but let me share it anyway. After completing a class on spiritual gifts, I I felt a call to ministry. And Bobby was on board with that call. We had sought the Lord, and we felt that God was leading in that particular direction. I, I shared my call with my parents, and my father, who was not a believer told me I was crazy to leave my secure position as an x-ray technologist with the VA and become a pastor. Son, you're, you're nuts. Why would you leave that position? You're entrenched. That's a good job. Don't do that. that. That's not what you should do. I have to be honest. His words hurt. They hurt, but they weren't surprising. You Sure, I, I, I wanted my father's blessing, but he didn't offer it. What did he offer? He offered his condemnation instead. That's what I got. Nonetheless, Bobby and I pursued pastoral ministry without his blessing. We did that because following Christ, you see, must take precedence over everything and everyone. That's what Jesus said to would-be follower number two. He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the kingdom of God was and is so important. I say to you, it cannot be delayed. There are souls that, that hinge on the balance. Souls that need Christ. There are, we need to be workers. If God has called you to some kind of a pastoral ministry, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Follow the Lord. When he says, follow me, it's not going to be an easy road. But you take that road. Because the Lord is asking you to follow him. Finally, after discussing would-be follower number one and would-be follower number two, let's move on and discuss the third of Jesus' would-be followers. We read his story in verses 61 and 62 of Luke chapter 9. Let me read it to you. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, 
But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke doesn't say specifically, but like the previous would-be followers before him, we'll assume that would-be follower number three was a man. So would-be follower number three was probably a male. Probably a male. I say that because culturally speaking, it would be highly unlikely for this would-be follower to be a female. Now perhaps you're wondering, well, what does Matthew have to say about this? You said that that he also offered another account, and I, I did check that out, but unfortunately we said that he only talked about two would-be followers, and this wasn't the one that he talked about. So we don't know anything about it. We'll assume that he was a male. Now what else do we know about would-be follower number three? Like would-be follower number three, we also, or, or like would-be follower number one, We also know would-be follower number three was a volunteer. He was a volunteer. Specifically, he told Jesus, now now catch this. I will follow you, Lord, but. I will follow you, Lord, but. We're going to get to that but in a moment. However, it's apparent would-be follower number three did volunteer to follow Jesus. Other than probably being a male and being a volunteer, we also know this about would-be follower number three. Like number two, he was also conditional in how he phrased his desire to follow Jesus. The only difference between the phrasing of the two would be would-be followers of Jesus is this. Would-be follower number two was conditional in his response to Jesus' calling because Jesus had called him. He said, follow me. While would-be follower number three was conditional in his voluntary desire to follow Jesus. Overall, would-be follower number three was saying this through his condition. I'll follow you, Jesus, just as long as I can follow you on my own terms. you catch that? You see, that's where his butt comes into his conditional desire. I'll, I'll follow you, Jesus, only if I can go back and say my goodbyes to my family. There's the condition that he gives. Now, once, on the, once again, on the surface, this condition seems valid, doesn't it? Does it seem like there's anything wrong with that? I want to go back and say goodbye to my family. That's a normal thing we do when we go on a journey, right? We go say our goodbyes. In fact, the Bible teaches that Elijah afforded Elisha that same goodbye to his family before he followed Elijah and became his attendant. So let's be honest here. On the surface, Jesus' response, once again, seems rather cold and harsh. So what gives? This is Jesus we're talking about. Apparently, Jesus detected a lukewarm faith and would-be follower number three. So he felt the need to address that. In doing so, would-be follower number three was enlightened by Jesus. But so are we. Jesus told the man and us he expects a full commitment when following him. A full commitment. When our interests are divided when following Christ, like would-be follower number three's interests are, we, 
regularly find ourselves looking back, looking rearward all the time, rather than looking forward the direction God is, is leading us. And if our interests are divided, I say to you, we can't be fully committed in following Christ. When that happens, our commitments become lukewarm. And I think this is the issue that many in the church are facing. Divided interests. Lord is asking them to do this, but they got this. But wait a minute. I want to do this and I I don't want to do that. I, I can't do both. Lukewarm. Listen to what Jesus said about the lukewarm church at Laodicea. The third chapter of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth, says the Lord. If your interests in following Christ are divided, you see, you, you regularly find yourself looking rearward. You're, you're pulled this way. Well, if your interests in following Christ are not divided, you find yourself regularly looking forward. So which way are you regularly looking? What's pulling you? This interest here or, or this interest that Christ has for you? You need to ask yourself that question. Apparently, how we regularly look, it tells the tale. Two would-be followers of Jesus volunteered their service, while one was called by Jesus specifically to follow him. Nonetheless, the Bible doesn't say if any of these three three would-be followers of Jesus counted the cost and followed him. That's why I continually say would-be follower, would-be follower, because we don't know what happened. However, I have a sneaking suspicion that they did not count the cost and follow him. But that's just my opinion. Regardless, Jesus' response to all three reminds us of our theme. Following Jesus must take precedence over everything and everyone. Everything and everyone. That means following Jesus takes precedence over your family's wishes and desires, especially if they're non-believers. You feel a call to the ministry, and they're saying they want you to serve in their family business. they got a spot there for you, but you're, you hear the Lord saying, I want you to go into pastoral ministry. There's a tough one, huh? That might include, you see, foregoing a lucrative secular career and as we said, becoming a pastor or missionary. It might also mean that your family's inheritance is put in jeopardy. But not only does following Jesus take precedence over your family's wishes and desires, but it's also true that following Jesus may put you in hot water. Christians living in very Muslim countries certainly understand that much better than we do. Some have lost their jobs. Some have been beaten. Some have been declared outcast by their family. And yes, some have even been martyred for their Christian faith. One thing's for sure. Jesus never said that following him would be easy. We've got to get that notion out of our head. 
Even in today's text, Jesus reminded would-be follower number one, he said, I have no permanent place to call home. Foxes and birds do. But Jesus did not. Jesus wasn't trying to discourage the first would-be follower of us, but he wanted him and us to know that following him would not be easy. It was always a cost. True followers of Jesus Christ have, have counted the cost, and you know what they do? They follow him anyway. They follow him. Another biblical name for such true followers of Christ is disciples. For a disciple chooses to walk where the one they followed has walked or is walking. Like I asked you in the introduction, what does following Jesus look like to you? What does that look like to you? And does following Jesus take precedence over everything and everyone? For sure, it's easy to follow Jesus at church, isn't it? We come here on a Sunday morning. We're all like-minded. This is an easy place to follow Jesus. But it often proves more difficult to follow Jesus at home or at work or maybe even at play. But I say to you, if we follow Jesus just on our terms, like many supposed followers of his have chosen to do, are we truly following him? Are you getting that? If we're, if we're say we're followers of Jesus, but we say, well, Lord, I'll follow you, but only if I can do this, or only on this condition, is that truly following Jesus? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. I told you, this is a tough passage. This is a tough one. Once again, I remind you of today's themes. Following Jesus must take precedence over everything and everyone. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a tough word. A tough word. We, we look at those three would-be followers, and, and on the surface, it, it does seem like you were rather cold and even harsh with them, Lord. But we... we we, we know that you are God and you know everything. So we're trying to make sense of this. It's, it seems like you're telling us that, that following you must take precedence over everything and everyone. That means we need to heed that calling, whatever that calling is. The time is of the essence, Lord. There are souls that hinge in the balance. If we're called the pastoral ministry, give us the courage to say, Lord, I believe you're calling me to this. And I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to give you that but. I'm just going to move forward. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that will be. But I'm going to move forward. If you're calling us to teach a Sunday school class, to work with the children, I'm going to follow you no matter what. I'm going to trust you. Give us that courage, Lord. Give us that courage. It's becoming more and more difficult in this this country to be people of faith. We want to be courageous people of faith. We want to make a difference for your kingdom. And Lord, we give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.